Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions what is education, where does it occur, and who gets to decide? Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Edu Third Space podcast. Today's topic is a continuation of the question of who gets to make decisions for education. Uh, specifically, this episode focuses on federal government's role in making decisions for education. My guest is Dr. Josh Bleiberg, and I wanted to have on Dr. Bleiberg because he recently published an article titled An Exploration of Spillover Effects, Evidence from Threat-Induced Education Reform. And so we talk about his findings in that article, and then we talk about federal government decision-making for schools broadly and when they should be involved compared to local decision-making. And this topic was particularly relevant at this time as the federal as well as state and local governments were making decisions for how to reopen schools or address the issues that schools would be facing because of the virus COVID-19. So we talk about that a little bit because it was relevant. And then I asked him questions based on his expertise of how or in what direction he thought the federal governments could and should go. Um, so listening to this episode, we will see if it matches what is actually happening because the episode was recorded earlier this summer. All right, so without further ado, we'll get into the episode. But first, as always, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and leave us a review. Hi, Dr. Flyberg. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Uh, Josh is fine. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> no problem. Uh, thanks for joining me today and for doing this um, or having this conversation for the podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to, I love this, this paper is like, I, I love talking about this paper. It's very special. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, I, um, I really enjoyed reading it as well, which, you know, hence why you're on here. I actually came across it, there was an article in Education Week that was talking about, um, it wasn't by you, but it was talking about your article, and that's how I came across it. Um, so I am very interested, just as a side note, in the federal government's role in education. And I, over time, have kind of shifted how I um, think about it and the extent to which I actually think that they should be involved. Um, so yeah, so this should be an interesting conversation. So why don't you just go ahead and start by giving a background of your experience with education that could be K through 12 or just education in the broader sense and where you're at today. Sure. Uh, so uh, my sort of path, um, I think, is, is a little bit different. I, I just graduated from my uh, PhD program studying education policy. Um, during the last recession that we had in 2009, I was graduating college, um, and the plan then was to, to teach elementary school, so I got certified to teach and was going to do that, um, and then never did, because um, I wasn't able to, to teach, but it, it ended up 
sort of leading me to where I'm at now, because uh, I've spent time working on political campaigns, uh, w working for one person who was in Congress uh, and several others uh, who are aspiring uh, to, to that office. And um, so sort of got to see government governance from, from that aspect. Um, and then got into studying education policy and, and also very interested in these questions of federalism. What is the, the what should the federal government role be both given like the rules that are laid out in the system that we have, um, but also just what works best for students and teachers in actual schools. Like should, should that role be larger? Should it be smaller? Um, and it, feel, it feels like that's, it, it's an area that's changed so much, but we just don't know a lot about. So that's one, one of the things I'm very interested in. Okay. And so on that topic, you published a paper that was related to federal government and mostly how, what, within the context that they make decisions around education policy. Um, so can you just describe um, that paper for us? Yeah, so I mean, a, a little bit of a background, I guess. I, I, this started when I was a research assistant at the Brookings Institution. And I was working um, for Sarah Bender, who studies congressional attention um, and congressional agenda making. And I was cleaning those data for her and was poking around with the education data one day and just sort of noticed that prior to like what I think of as the big K-12 education reforms, the National Defense Education Act, the Elementary Secondary Education Act, and No Child Left Behind. I mean, there's others, but those are, at least in my view, the big, big ones. Um, that th they were all preceded by a pretty large national security event. Um, and the paper has had several different iterations, but that, that was sort of where my interest in it began um, and found that that the pattern that you see with the entrance of uh, Korea prior to NDA, the escalation of Vietnam prior to ESEA, and 9-11 um, prior, prior to NCLB. And it seemed like what was happening was that these national security crises were actually driving attention to education, which seems pretty idiosyncratic when you think about it because I think what, what most people think about it is that there's there's a problem uh, and whatever that problem is that the, the solution is somewhat linked to that and so obviously that link isn't there in this case so um, yeah the paper is exploring one whether that link is is there um, to the extent that that can be demonstrated and then exploring some of the reasons for why it might be the case okay and so with um, doing that research did your um, how you think about the federal government's role in education, did it change in any particular direction? Yeah, it, it, it did a, a, a little. Um, I think, um, well, so, so sort of tangentially, it, it changed the way that I thought about a particular political tactic that's used a lot by education reformers. Well, not just education reformers, really anyone who's uh, in, involved uh, in schools in some way, but there's often um, framing of education issues as a, an emergency. Um, to, I mean, to phrase it in slightly hyperbolic terms, there's that 
teacher in, in The Simpsons who you say, well, won't someone think of the children? But there's sort of like that, that attitude um, is discussed a lot. And I, th I think the change, and, and you hear that from people in, in Congress too, that using these external emergencies or just like the, the state of education in general um, as being so woeful that it should be treated like an emergency. I, I think initially I thought, well, we do really need to make changes. Uh, that that's important and it's sort of a whatever justification you can come up with it that can get these changes through good do, just do that that's that's justifiable um, and I think my perspective on that has changed a little bit I, I think it tends to when, when, when we think looking back in retrospect no Elephant having been gone for even a few years now and we think about what the failures and sort of the few successes of that law was, I think you can directly attribute it to the fact that that law was constructed and written really quickly. And that, that actually some of the, the actual flaws in the education policy itself and the writing of it may have been due to this emergency mindset attitude to that, that these debates need to, to play out. You need to think more about the trade-offs um, and the, the consequences of some of these policies. So I think, I think it's, I, I don't know, the, it, that doesn't really solve the, the initial problem, which is like, it takes a lot to get a big education reform through. And so um, it's still important to do, and there's a lot of barriers, but I don't, I don't see that as like, as clearly, oh, that's obviously the right move now, but like there's really stark trade-offs with using that, that strategy. Okay, and so then what would your advice be to uh, members of Congress who are making these decisions and how they should approach education policy? Because I often feel like they're, or think, I try to stop saying feel like, I often think that, um, that, sorry, no, I've completely drawn a blank on what I want to say. Uh, oh, I often think that they just feel like, the, or they think that they can fix the issue later on, that we'll go ahead and get it passed, and that seems to happen at the state level too, this is certainly not just a federal issue, that we'll just get it passed and then we'll deal with tweaks later, which I would make an educated guess to say that that often doesn't happen or in a way that substantially improves the policy. So then what would your advice be to members of Congress and how to approach education policy? Yeah, so uh, sort of the short version of this, and this is overly simplistic, <laughs> is that I, I think there just needs to be greater investments of, of resources. And, and some of that is money. And here, I guess there's the more long version, but, uh, but it's also investments in state education agency capacity, particularly like human capacity. Um, when, when I think about the history of federal education reform, um, it's trying to do a lot of things, but the sort of like main goal, and it's had so many different names, is to take schools that have a low level of performance and raise that level of performance. So you can call it turnaround, you can call it, call it school improvement, you can call it, it yeah, it's, it, it's had a lot of different names over the years. Um, and I think 
the theories and logics of those policies haven't really evolved much. I don't think they're either clearly right or wrong either. I think we just have never actually been honest about not just really not just about the money, although I think it would take a large infusion of money. But if you're really talking about taking just to to put it in a specific example, 5% of the lowest performing schools in a large state like California or Texas, that's a lot of schools. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of students. Um, And the state departments of education, I don't, who are really like constitutionally the, the level of government that should be overseeing that, they just don't have the resources to be able to, to do that. My, my sort of understanding of, of the school improvement school turnaround literature is that just trying to universalize it and, and trying to get everyone to get to a high level. Um, maybe it's, it's a good idea in theory, but uh, you just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. So I, I think the federal government should be less attuned to specific differences in school accountability or school turnaround policy, or, or I think there's probably going to be a lot of attention to education technology because of the pandemic. Um, let other people figure that out, but you need, you need to give those people the resources that they need to uh, to solve those problems and to think much more attentively about goals. I think that's the other thing that could change on, on the federal policy side. I'm sort of, a, one of the things that I wish I knew the answer to, and I've somewhat looked at it a lot, but I've never been able to, to find a, an actual answer, is whether when they were writing No Child Left Behind in 2000, whether they actually thought that every child reaching proficiency by 2014 was a goal that could actually be reached or whether it was aspirational. And I, I think it probably differs depending on the congressperson that you're talking about. Um, but the answer to that completely recontextualizes whether that law was effective or not, and what, what its purpose is, the, the whole thing. And I, I think it's a, anyone who thought that it was actually possible, well, it's, it's wrong. Like we're not, that's not, that's not doable, certainly with the level of resources that we have invested. So think about those goals, think about how, how the people in lower levels of government are going to be able to achieve those goals. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I would think about. Yeah, yeah, my guess is that it was aspirational. I know um, international organizations, uh, you know, like the World Bank, things like that, when they put dates on things, that it's usually aspirational, which is fine, you know, that gets people moving forward. But the problem with No Child Left Behind is there were a lot of sanctions attached to it. Um, so that's, that's often my concern is when you're at such a high level and you're talking about schools and students that you will never step foot in, um, that aspirational goals, you know, it's then hard to see how it um, actually plays out at the local level. Yeah. So then with that, would you, um, well, first let me ask with the Every Student Succeeds Act. So in that legislation, uh, things got pushed more down to the state level than had been a no child left behind. Do you think that that was a good move forward? Um, I, so I think, so I, I, I talk about this in my dissertation a little, a little bit because I have a paper on no child left behind or on the, on the waivers, um, which also gets at um, ESSA a little bit. And I, 
I think it, I think it is a good idea insofar as what you were saying before that like mass sanctioning of schools, like having a system where every school is sanctioned or under threat of sanction, that doesn't make any sense. So like the, the number needs to be, the per percentage of schools that are sanctioned needs to be way less than that. Um, and it's gonna, it's going to vary it, it needs to be, it needed to be less. And so ESSA did that. And so in that sense, it's a success. There's a lot of, I was actually just reading another paper about this. There's, there's a lot of variation in school accountability systems under ESSA, which is how it was designed. And probably that was the best achievable compromise for passing that law at the time. So it makes sense politically as well. Um, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm less convinced that there's actually, much of a justification when you get into the nitty-gritty of the plans. So, I mean, they're all more complicated than this, but if you put a specific point on it, where one state is going to sanction 4% of the schools and another is going to sanction 8%, you know, that's a big difference in the everyday of the lives of the schools that actually get sanctioned. And I don't think there's a really sophisticated conversation going on. I'm sure they're thinking about it and they're, and they're talking about that, but like, there's, we don't know what the right number is. So there's no, uh, as researchers, so I, I don't know how they could really decide whether eight or four in that hypothetical is like really best for the kids in their state. And I also don't think that that's really something that would vary across states. Like whatever the right, whatever that, that right number is, it's probably right for people everywhere. And we just don't know it. But having said that, I think that was the way you had to, you had to go about writing that law was just letting states do what they wanted to, to, to get it passed, to get that passed at that time. Okay. And so then what do you think about this kind of gets to an idea of bottom up reforms instead of top down. So if, um, and that's kind of how this, you know, the difference between states was designed that you have these places where if these are good ideas, the ideas can be replicated in other um, areas, but I often think about not just the state level, but the local, like within local school districts. So what do you think about um, how decision making might change if it's at the strictly district level? If, if there was a, a, a version of the, essentially like a, a version of ESSA where it was it was done at, uh, it was like state flexibility rather than, or sorry, district flexibility rather than state flexibility? Yes. Oh. Yes. Oh, oh, sorry, you were frozen there for a second. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I got you back now. Um, yeah, okay. Um, I think I think I'm kind of in my own mind. I'm a bit torn um, about that. Um, I think so. So to talk about talk about the trade-offs as I see them, the the advantage of going national um, in theory is that uh, a higher level of of government is going to be better able to protect disenfranchised groups. Um, 
through different race ethnicities and uh, along socioeconomic gaps, and they'll, they're sort of better situated because of their composition to, to absorb the political shocks that would be um, associated with that. Um, and states are less able to do that because they're going to be more indebted to uh, parochial political interests. And districts, that dynamic could be multiplied even further because the, the boundaries themselves are, are a product of those, um, of those politics with um, mature districts having sort of naturally, or I guess unnaturally drawn their own lines um, over the years. Um, but on the flip side, like I was saying before, I don't think that there's really a point. You're not, certainly students are not gonna benefit from a law at any level that requires a district to do something that there's no either resources or like political support on the, on the ground to do. Um, and when you look at No Child Left Behind, like what did, what did it actually do? Well, it changed incentives pretty starkly to change how districts allocated instructional time, focusing more on the, on the tested subjects than the untested subjects. Um, it arguably, I don't know, not arguably, it did lead to um, creating such strong incentives for higher test scores that you saw some, some gaming and in some extreme cases, some, some cheating. Um, and, you know, that, that doesn't help students either. Um, so I, I think the, I hope the, the balance is sort of what I was saying before, that you can find an accountability system that works um, with the, the specific districts. Um, and I think that the other, the other big one here is that the rural versus urban mm -hmm. divide, just like the, the policy logic of how these systems work is very much attuned for there being lots of different schools, lots of mobility of teachers, to have choice be viable. And it's not that none of those things don't work in a, in a rural environment, but they function pretty fundamentally differently. Um, so that needs to be baked into the, to the system as well, I think. Um, but yeah, largely, largely I agree, I think. Okay. And, you know, we're in a moment of crisis right now, which you alluded to earlier. So we, um, for the future listeners to know, we're dur uh, talking during, sort of at the tail end, can't tell, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I have heard um, parents in particular kind of you know, how the school system works has become more apparent to them. You know, there were things about it that they de didn't necessarily know about um, beforehand. And one person I was talking to, <clears throat> excuse me, who I actually interviewed, she was talking about the different layers of decision making that have been involved and kind of at odds with each other at times when it came mm -hmm. to how to deal with this. So with that in mind, do you think the federal government's role will increase as a result? Because we are in a time of crisis, you know, which is uh, what your, your um, research is focused on, or at least in that article. And so do you think or predict or your educated guess would be that it will pass additional policy related to this or that it will pull back? Yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, to, pl to place the time even more specifically, we're, we're talking on July 1st. The reason I mentioned that is because it allows me to cheat a little bit because I was looking on a bill that was being considered in the Senate like an hour before we had this conversation. Um, but in my defense, I did think this before I saw, I saw that, that news. Um, so like in the, in the logic of the paper, um, there's two sort of spillovers that can happen. A, sp a spillover being um, there's attention being paid to uh, one category of issue. In this case, it would be the pandemic. Um, and then that attention shifts to, to another is issue. Um, so with the, um, there's sort of like two different ways you can think about it. The, the classic sort of spillover literature is dealt with is that there's going to be some sort of logical link between the, the policy issues. So uh, if there's um, a weakened economy due to a famine, then you might expect that the first thing that would be addressed would be the famine and then maybe the unemployment issues that would result uh, due, to, due to that. And that would be sort of a more classic spillover. If, the, if that's what's happening, and I, I think it is, then what you would expect to see is a, is a, res a policy response in schools that is more logically connect connected to the pandemic. So it'd be funding for protective gear, uh, uh, for teachers, for masks, for modifications they need to make to how classrooms are organized, to how buses are scheduled, um, maybe delivering meals, extra, extra funding for all those things. None of that really requires new policies. I mean, maybe some waivers for uh, not allowing or for long states not to test or, or some other stuff like that. But it would, it would be the lessening of the policies, not the adding on of the, of the policies. The other way you could think about it, and I guess, so this is why the observation that I make in the paper may be wrong, um, is this sort of unconventional spillover where there's like not a logical connection between certainly like the start of, uh, between 9-11 and No Child Left Behind, I even though in, in Joel Mehta's book, I think I have this in the paper, he's this amazing quote where he was on another project on the hill and so he talks about how people on the hill really saw those things politically as being connected but but in any case that that, that led to a big policy change i don't think and, and that's sort of what you also see with the escalation in iraq and, and risk to the top I, I my guess is that that we're not going to see something like risk to the to the top where there's uh contingent on getting additional funds that are changes made uh, to policies. And, and I think that's for, for two reasons. One, ESSA got passed relatively recently. Um, and from a policy perspective, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I, I have no idea whether we're the beginning, middle, or end of the, of the pandemic. But it, like politically, it feels like that's a moment that is still very much alive. And you sort of see that in, in how Congress responded to the pandemic with the this, this series of different bills with one and two and three A and three B or whatever it was. And it feels like that's how they're going to continue to address it, that there's going to be um, continu continued small bills rather than one big omnibus bill. Um, and that's usually how you get a race to the top snuck in there, that it's just, it's this emergency moment, but the emergency also ends. I mean, this is, this is going to last a bit longer. Um, and so I, my guess would be that we are gonna, we're gonna see additional 
funds provided, if for no other reason, I don't have kids, but um, you know, there seems to be a strong political consensus building for people, particularly who have young children, that if it's safe, they want their kids to be able to go to school. Um, and the federal government can provide resources to, to at least make that viable, um, both in terms of making it safe, but also in terms of having teachers there because the, the coming local fiscal crisis that they, they won't have as much revenue to, to keep those teachers in the school. Um, so I, th I think that will happen if for, if for no other reason that it seems like it would be completely bad politics months away from an election to lay off somewhere be hundreds of thousands of teachers and middle class jobs. It's just seems like that would be really political malpractice on behalf of the leaders of Congress that they would want to avoid and also just bad policy. Okay, and how about within like keeping in mind the Secretary of Education is a big supporter of private schooling and also home education. Um, do you think that the administration um, under her leadership will try to move something related to that forward? Yeah, that could, that seems like, I mean, that would build on a lot of actions that were already taken with the CARES Act and um, Secretary DeVos has uh, issued guidance and I think is moving towards issues of regulation to send proportionally more uh, of those resources to private schools than traditionally you, you would think about uh, being sent. Um, I, 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 so definitely yes on, on the private school part. I'm not, I'm not sure about the, the homeschooling um, aspect of it. I, I think my guess, and it would really be just a guess, is sort of what I was alluding to before, that parents are really realizing that one function of schools is, is that they are a babysitter, <laughs> um, and that that is a highly valued function of schools. Um, and so there may be an increase in homeschooling as a result of this. So it was already increasing before the, the mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, so who knows whether this will uh, accelerate that or not. Um, but I think there'll be a lot of people who that will be the only safe option for them either due to, uh, due to a variety of factors. And I hadn't thought about it. That's very interesting in terms of providing resources to parents to support home instruction of their students, or maybe not in money, but having someone at the department make resources designed for, for parents for how to teach their kids. That could definitely happen. Yeah, yeah, because they don't really have the mechanisms to legislate around it because the role of the federal government is mostly funding and when it comes to education. So you participate because you take the funding. Um, but yeah, I do wonder if there's going to be some sort of mechanism and not just for, I would guess, not just safety purposes, but if there's plexiglass in all of the rooms and kids have to stay socially distanced, like, you know, parents just might not want to have their kid in an environment where they can't play with their friends or, you know, uh, things like that. Totally. Yeah. And as far as testing is concerned, you brought that up. Um, do you think that they would offer a waiver moving forward? And what might the implications be for that as far as accountability is concerned? Um, I know like in Los Angeles, they, when they were switching 
um, accountability systems. They called it going data dark. So they basically act as if yeah. they normally did. They just didn't have any data for a couple of years. Yeah. For, so for spring 2021, I think it's, it's an interesting question in terms of whether or not they're, they're going to give tests. Um, I know there's also pressure to, or not pressure, there, there's been some researchers who have talked about wanting to do tests in the fall because tests were canceled this spring. Um, my view on this is that they, that it's that a test in the fall is certainly not useful and probably it's reasonable to cancel testing in the, in the spring as well. Um, and the, the logic is a bit of a circle, but here's always how I think about it. If you, if you just ask someone who knows anything about schools to guess what the tests are going to show, they're going to tell you, well, scores are going to go down uh, and achievement gaps are going to get worse. Um, and it seems exceedingly unlikely that that won't be true. So then, and that it is also not the school's fault, that that is the pandemic's fault. So under that set of ideas, it doesn't really make sense to hold schools accountable. And there's also not really much of a value in figuring out, like how, how important is it to figure out whether it's achievement gaps got much worse or much, much worse? Like, is that, is that an, for some people that may be an important distinction. To me, it's um, to, get, to get into the nitty gritty about how, how much worse it got it is not particularly valuable because it's not gonna change what the response is gonna be. Um, we're still gonna, the, the response is still just give them their resources. Um, so this is a bit of a, a, a plug for a research tool that I use a lot that I, I use the NAEP, um, the National Assessment of Educational Progress a ton. Um, and I think, and they've, they've made the transition this past year to um, give the NAEP online. Um, so they're piloting that in 2019, I think in most states. And the next time it's scheduled to be given uh, is spring 2021. Um, so I think they should just give the NAEP again. It may be probably this, they normally give it a January uh, through March in the spring of the school year. So it's probably too heavy of an ask to, to have them do it in August and September because that's just around the corner. Um, but it's, it's also issued in, um, in odd years. So maybe doing it in, in even years going forward. And that would allow us to be able to say within each state and throughout the country, how's this going on overall? Roughly how, how big were these changes? But you're not you're not doing it for accountability purposes. Um, it's uh, yeah, that's that's sort of how I I feel about that. I also just think whenever when we're looking back at this in retrospect, wh whatever the first school year that we have post pandemic that is as close to normal as possible, whether that's this coming one or whether it's the one after that or the one after that. Um, it's it's just not really gonna matter how bad how bad it was in terms of the effect on on test scores. There's gonna be so many other things. Just getting kids in classrooms and having them feel safe and give instruction at a high level, that's plenty of challenges. We don't need any more challenges than that. To figure out how to do testing on top of that just seems like that should be 
a real low order priority for the federal government for for anyone at this point yeah i hope you're right because even with this year when they're like oh you know they were really dragging their heels on canceling the test i'm like it doesn't matter come on like just let it go <laughs> right yeah yeah they, i mean they were talking about i mean i know there's there's even some districts that this because they because the new common core assessments are online so i just like they're talking about like well, let's just have them do it at home and it's like you can do that like you can have the kids take these tests that are designed for a very specific sit-down environment but i don't know what you think it's gonna show like mm -hmm. psychometrically you have problems <laughs> like it's not it's not gonna be as good a measure as it was before um and i don't know it's sort of <laughs> it's, it's sort of like cutting up a lemon and being like i wonder if i take a bite into this if it is it going to be sour and then you do it and you're like, yep, can't confirm it was sour. It's like, okay, great. Was that a fruitful exercise? Like, I'm not, and I don't, I don't say how it could be. Yeah, well, I think the school system in general is pretty conservative. Change is not easy for it. So I think it was mostly the idea that we weren't going to follow the normal course of how things go. Um, and people were really having a hard time of letting go of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, are there any other, you know, crisis in mind or crisis aside, any other ways that you see um, federal government involvement morphing over time or uh, just policies at any level in general for education? Yeah, there, I, there was one more thing that, um, that a, a question you had sent me that, uh, that I was thinking about that I think made a lot of uh, sense uh, in response to that. There's these, um, like the history of federal education reform is quite cyclical where we're in this phase now where it's, I mean, in general, the, the role of the federal government has increased over time, but it's sort of whether the, the action is at the state level or the federal level primarily has sort of waxed and waned. And, and we're in a moment where, uh, like you were saying, more of the focus is on the states. Um, I think that eventually we'll, somewhere in the next five or ten years see um, big federal action again and um, I hope that when that happens that there will be more attention to what districts and states are already doing and what they're able to do so not, not even the investments in the capacities that I was talking about before but um, like what what they're actually able to do today and, and uh, that's sort of based on Paul Manna has this idea called borrowing strength where he's looking at No Child Left Behind and saw that there are these states doing that before and it, it builds political support, it builds resource support, capacity support. Um, and I think that's, that's got to be the way that you go about doing this. Um, either that or an amendment to the Constitution that redefines all of these roles in much more specific ways. But I strongly suspect that that is not going to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. And do you just mean roles specifically related to education or roles with how the federal government deals with states in general? Well, I think, I think one, um, I guess to be more specific, one option if you wanted to really like change how uh, the, the role of federal and American uh, education governance would be to 
pass an amendment to the Constitution um, providing a right uh, to education uh, under the federal Constitution. That, that right exists under many state constitutions, but does not uh, exist at the federal level. And so if you did that, then the uh, Congress would have a responsibility to protect the rights of those students. And so it would make it, it would change education as a policy area to be more like currency or something like that, where, where the federal government would be able to dictate and overrule state policies. I'm not, I'm not sure that that would be clearly better, um, but that would be one way to, to go about it. And I guess in lieu of doing that, much more attention needs to be paid to, uh, to existing state and local capacities. Yeah, because that would also give them a lot of latitude to make decisions for how <clears throat> education plays out at the state and local level, which currently is just a funding issue. Right. Yeah, it would be, I mean, it would, well, who, who knows what that, that world will look like. It would be very different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my, my concern with stuff like that is it could be for the better or for the much worse. Um, personally, I was not a fan of No Child Left Behind, so that wasn't something that, as far as, you know, the federal government having that much authority over um, what states were able to roll out in, in their districts. Yeah, I, I think, I think the, pro the main problem with that system is um, sort of what I was alluding to before school accountability systems, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about what a perfect school accountability system looks like. So um, we do know that things like treating, you know, black students differently than white students, that's wrong. So uh, that the federal government is very well suited to uh, protect things like that. And that's, that's really the, not just specific uh, rights issues like that, but any, any education issue, if it was in a place where we knew this policy is the correct policy, any deviation from that is wrong to some extent. But we don't live in that world. Like there's, there's, not, there's some education policies like that, and, and I'm sure people would quibble about me which specific ones there are, but uh, for example, I don't think there's any reason that there, shouldn't, there should be a lack of high-speed internet access in a school. So I, I think that's an area ripe for, for federal intervention. That's sort of more or less where, where they're at now. But with things that don't work as well, it's, they're primed to, to make a, a mess of it. But I hope that, I guess, my hope is that that changes. My hope is that we learn more about uh, how, how, to, how to make, these policies have not existed forever. Maybe we'll learn about how to execute them in a better manner and also provide them the proper resources. And then once we do, it will make more sense to, to roll them out nationally, but we don't, that's not the world today. And be mm -hmm. foolish to think that it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, policymakers don't like this, but how research plays out takes time. Learning how policies work takes time. Um, the accumulation of research, I should say, you know, takes time to learn about these things. Absolutely. Okay. Well, is there anything else about the role of the federal government in um, schooling that you would like to talk about before we end or anything we discuss that you want to go back to? Oh, that, that's great. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate um, being able to talk to someone whose article I really enjoyed. Oh, me as well. Thank, thank you for inviting me. And um, yeah, no, I really, I really appreciated the conversation. Yeah.